And we're going to get started with a commercial this morning. Good morning and welcome to A Vision for You. Melanie? And good morning and absolutely happy anniversary, seven years and still setting strong. Thanks entirely to God. And to punctuate this anniversary and announcement, we will be meeting face-to-face in one place from all over the world. Let's set this study ablaze. Let's set this anniversary ablaze. Announcing this November a Vision for You Big Book Study Convention 2019. Let's take this anniversary to the road. A Vision for You Big Book Study is one of the most notable virtual study groups for compulsive overeating. And once every two years, we come together to dive deeper and serve farther face-to-face. So in 15 short weeks, it's happening. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, November 15th, 16th, and 17th, 2019. Join 800 visionaries at the Liberty International Airport Marriott Hotel and Convention Center in upstate New Jersey. 295 have registered, and that's a pre-convention record, folks. Now hear me out. Rooms and seating are limited, no kidding. To register and make hotel reservations, visit our website at www.avisionforyou.info. And that's the number four in that lineup there, people. This is an open invitation to all. Feel free to spread this news via the downloadable flyer that you'll find on our website. Now, let's open up today's Sunday special edition celebrating seven years of studying together. Thank you, Melanie C. And good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, August 4th, 2019. My name is Leah M. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater and your moderator for this morning. The share ID numbers for Friday, August the 2nd, 2019, are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 13,230. That's 13230. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 13,232. That's 13232. This morning, A Vision for You celebrates its seventh anniversary with a very special edition. Twelve testimonials as to the power, experience, and results of the program of recovery and a relationship with a power greater than ourselves. Many people consider the program of recovery, the 12 steps, one of the greatest miracles of the 20th century. There's no telling how many lives have been touched and transformed by these 12 steps. The sole purpose of this step work is to find a power through the experience of a spiritual awakening. The 12 steps enable people of all walks of life, all around the globe, all different types, from all different backgrounds, in spite of all odds, to experience change, transformation, like never seen anywhere else. What a miracle. 12 simple steps, which anybody can apply. This morning, you will hear from 12 voices, recovered compulsive overeaters, each describing in their own 
personal way how the individual steps have changed them, their impact, their life-changing transformation. Twelve voices weaving together twelve stories of transformation. Messages of depth and weight, creating a powerful message of hope and possibility. So we're going to get started right now with step one. We admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Here to present on step one, Jason Kay from Pennsylvania. Good morning, Jason. Good morning, Leah. Can you hear me? I hear you well. Good. Thank you very much. I am Jason Kay, recovered compulsive eater and bulimic from outside of Philadelphia. And um, step one is a passion of mine. It's a passion of mine because of my life story. I spent many, many, many years confused, conflicted, relapsing, struggling, going to Overeaters Anonymous, leaving Overeaters Anonymous, selling or giving away all my literature, only to come back defeated, down, discouraged, to try again. So when I was 12 years old, I started my first diet. I was told I was fat. Um, I was uncomfortable in my body. Food had a weird place in my life. By the time I was 20 years old, I was sitting on a couch of psychologists trying to figure out why I ate compulsively. I was also attending my first meeting as a 20-year-old, um, roughly around that age. From the, from the ages of 20 to 37, I was in Overeaters Anonymous at various levels, coming in, leaving, finding meetings, um, trying to figure out what abstinence was. As I progressively got worse in my disease, um, I progressively became more willing to try um, recovery, to give up flour and sugar, to get a food plan from a nutritionist. When I was 30, uh, I'm 39 years old today. When I was 37, I recovered. I finally understood and accepted uh, the first step and all its in, in implications. And I'm 39 today. I have close to two years of, of recovered abstinence, entire abstinence. And so if you do the math, I took 17 years to fully accept step one. I didn't understand. I have a fatal and progressive illness. I have this uh, strange, abnormal relationship with food. And I have what Dr. Silkworth calls in the doctor's opinion an, an allergy to certain food substances. These are all the foods I crave, that I seek out, that I eat to excess. And uh, for our purposes, the way I consider the allergy is an adverse, abnormal reaction. It's characterized by a craving. The craving is wanting more, but not just like having a craving, like I have a craving for this and then I eat it and then the craving's gone. That's what happens to a normal eater. When I have a craving, I'm powerless to counteract that craving. I'm driven uh, beyond my will to go seek out those foods and to um, take that to extreme levels. You know, if I have a cheat meal, it turns into a cheat week or a cheat month. I'm, I'm not sure when I'm coming back from that. And, and I'm bodily different. I react different, differently. Once I start eating those foods, I can't, I can't stop. This is what I did with my life day in and day out. I, I, I sought out certain foods and food combinations to give me this effect. And Dr. Silkworth talks about men and women drink, and in our case, we eat these foods for this effect. Even though this effect is elusive, we can't seem to get the same effect. We can't seem to just get that feeling it's injurious, but I chase that effect. And if certain foods didn't have this tremendous, deep, almost, uh, almost like a spiritual experience, like that this, this food gives me this effect of taking me out of it, 
I wouldn't have let that food do to me what it did to me if it didn't do for me something profound and deep. Um, so I go to any, I go to great lengths to uh, escape uh, my uh, my restless, irritable, and discontent discontent feelings that I have. So as an addict, as a uh, somebody with an alcoholic mind, as a compulsive eater, when I don't accept the solution outlined in the Big Book. I'm restless, I'm irritable, I'm discontent. And that characterized my life. I, I was seeking something. I was never happy. I was always somewhere, but I wasn't quite where I needed to be. I was always looking to go somewhere else. But food and certain foods did something for me. And other people saw this in me. When I was in my uh, late 20s, I had a boss. You know, I came into work and I was carrying this energy drink, and she looked at me and she said, you have a disturbing relationship with those energy drinks. And why was that? Because it created this effect. Now, if that was my problem, the energy drinks, the cookie cakes, ice cream, you know, all those deep fried foods, if that was my main problem, what's the solution? Stop eating those foods. But for me to stop eating those foods is like trying to hold my breath. When I go underwater and I'm playing around in the pool and I try to hold my breath, as soon as I take that inhale and I hold my breath, my mind starts getting on me to take that breath. And the longer I, I abstain from breathing, the more intense my desire to take that next breath. This is exactly how it is when I abstain from compulsive, uh, those alcoholic foods, those special foods for me. So if I'm separated from food somehow, if I manage to stop, I'm coming back to it. My mind has an obsessive quality to it. It has some mental blank spots that doesn't tell, that, that doesn't allow me uh, to stay away from that food. My willpower, uh, I can't make a decision. My willpower is damaged. My mind is damaged. It, it, it can't resist the desire to go back to those foods, no matter how great the necessity, no matter how great the wish, no matter how intense the consequences, I can't stop. I can't stop no matter what. I always come back. And I was in Overeaters Anonymous in my, it was maybe 35, 36. I had about three months of abstinence. My digestion cleared up. I lost, you know, 20, 30 pounds. Yet my mind kept, kept telling me I hadn't worked the steps. I hadn't had a spiritual awakening. And my mind kept telling me, you should break your abstinence. You should go eat those foods. I couldn't escape it. I tried resisting. You know, I went to bed one night at like 5.30 in the evening. I just couldn't stop my mind from thinking about those foods. And I couldn't get away from it. I tried to make calls. I tried to read literature. I couldn't get away from it until uh, going to bed early. I usually would be able to wake up and start afresh. I woke up the next morning one day. This is about after a, a week of just intense, obsessive thinking about taking that first bite. And I drive to the local convenience store at 5 in the morning in the dead of winter in a parking lot, I'm eating ice cream. I'm eating muffins and donuts and chips. I can't stop. My willpower is insufficient. It's damaged. It's, it's unable to stop me no matter how great the necessity or the wish. And this was the central fact of my life. And my mind, my brain, my thinking uh, was skewed. And, you know, we have as compulsive eaters this deep, deep um, desire to prove that we can eat like compulsive eaters. And even though I was struggling with this, I mean, for decades, there was some part of me that was unwilling to fully concede that I had this, I, that I had this fatal progressive illness. 
I still felt like somehow, someday, I'm going to get control of this. And even though for decades, for year after year, this thing was getting worse, I still felt like I was just around the corner. I was just about to get it. You know, maybe if I get hypnotized, maybe if I try, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy. My job in the first step in explaining this and my truth is this is a hopeless condition. If you think you can do it on your own, you're not going to do it. The, the first step is about snuffing out the conviction that you can do the job yourself under your own power and lay that argument up against your life, your truth, based on your experience and without a cost. Thank you very much, Jason Kay. Step two came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And I welcome Tina S. from Florida to share. Thanks so much, Leah. Tina S., recovered compulsive eater, anorexic in Florida. Grateful to be on the line. Happy anniversary, Vision. What a gift. So grateful. And oh, thanks so much, Jason. Uh, you just described me totally. And I'm so grateful that I'm, I'm in the right rooms, you know, uh, you know, I also, you know, growing up as a, as a young child, I couldn't even, I can't even remember how young I was that food became the solution for whatever was going on in my life. And, um, you know, and I knew I felt different, you know, and I knew that all the stuff that Jason talked about was happening as a kid for me. And, um, and I didn't know what to do other than to eat because that was the only thing that kept me a little bit sane for a little bit, you know, and, uh, you know, and I'm, I also am in a couple of 12-step programs, you know. So my first diet as a compulsive eater, anorexic, was booze, you know, and it worked till it didn't work. You know, and I loved what was shared, you know, if I could have done this thing, if I would have, could have, should have, I would have, you know. And if food was the problem, I would have been able to do it, or so I thought so. But, you know, one of the things that it tells me in the big book, and I love this, you know, because for me, as a compulsive eater, somehow, someway, someday, I'm going to get hold of this thing. I'm bigger than that. I'm better than that. I'm stronger than that. I can do that. You know, but what happens is, you know, my um, abstinent date is um, July the 5th, 1999. And I came into Overeaters Anonymous the first time in December of 1987. And I got the big book. I was in the treatment center. I had a food plan. They told me to go to Overeaters Anonymous. But I thought I had this thing. I had the diet. By the time I left treatment, I was a normal body size. I thought, hey, this is some good stuff. You know, again, my abstinence date is July the 5th, 1999. That's like 12 years difference. Uh, and when I finally came in, you know, um, the first time, you know, I thought, I got this thing. They give me these 12 steps. You know, I was raised Catholic. I can do this thing. I've got a God in my life. Well, I forgot that I hadn't been practicing my religion or any kind of spiritual anything since I was a senior in high school, and I was 30 by this time. So for whatever reason, that didn't really work, but I thought, you know, eh, man, that God, I believe in God. And I really did believe that there was a God, but I believed that God would work for you and maybe not for me, that I had to be something different, to do something different. Well, you know... I got beaten down, you know, and I love and, and, and we agnostics, and I have to share this. I, I don't know what meeting it was, but Penny C. said something about, you know, this may not be her favorite chapter, but it was the chapter that really changed her life. And that's my experience. 
That is totally my experience. And somebody else I'll share about with, I think it was Craig, he talked about that, you know, I knew that this God, by the time, by the end of my life, that I'd be forgiven for whatever sins or whatever that I had done. And I believe that too. But what about my life today? You know, not at the end of my life. What about how I live my life today? You know, and we agnostic that says to be doomed to an alcoholic death or compulsive eating death or to live on a spiritual basis are not easy alternatives to faith. And that was so true for me. But then it says, but after a while, we had to face the fact that we must find a spiritual basis of life or else. You know, and that's my experience. And then it tells me on page 45 that, that it tells me what my, my problem is. Lack of power is my dilemma. It's not the food. It's not the booze. It's not the sex. It's not the shopping. It's lack of power. And as long as I believed that on my own, that I could take care of this, I was screwed. You know, in, in step one, it talks about, you know, the second part of step one, management position. I was fired a long time ago. You know, so I needed a new manager. And I needed a new employer. And that's what happened. My experience is, you know, I didn't just start reading agnostics and, you know, I'm, I'm good to go. I've got to go now. But it says that, you know, the way I do that, the way I find this power, you know, the main object of the book, you know, is to enable me to find a power that will solve my problem, whatever that may be. You know, but this is only step two. You know, there's always work to be done. And, and, you know, today I'm grateful for that. I wasn't initially. I thought, let's just get this done and over with so I can, so I can go on, you know. And, um, and then, uh, you know, it also told me that I could start right where I was. I didn't have to be anyplace else. I didn't have to be anybody else. I could just start right there. I just had to be willing. Am I even willing to believe that there's a power greater than myself? And then it says, if he is, we emphatically assure him he's on his way. You know, that's my experience. And I had to be open-minded, faced with alcoholic destruction. We soon became as open-minded on spiritual matters as we had tried to be on other questions. You know, alcohol, food was a great persuader. It finally beat us into a state of reasonableness. You know, and it took a long time. You know, I came in, you know, my, I was, um, I think, 39 when I got uh, abstinent. I'm going to be 61 in two weeks. I have a life today beyond my wildest dreams. I get emotional when I talk about that because it's just so the truth. I didn't think I'd live to see 30, you know, and I'm going to be 61. And another thing in the book that it talks about, that God is either everything or else he is nothing. God either is or he isn't. What was our choice to be? What is my choice to be daily? I have that on my computer at work. What's my choice today? Because I have one. As long as I'm not in the food, I have a choice today. You know, and I'm so grateful for A Vision for You. It has really catapulted my recovery, my experience with Overeaters Anonymous for sure. And I'm so grateful for the people who got this meeting started and to be on the line with everybody. And I'll just end with this. Even so, as God restored us all to our right minds, to this man, the revelation was sudden. Some of us grow into it more slowly, but he has come to all who have honestly sought him. When we drew near to him, he disclosed himself to us. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Tina S., very much. Step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And I welcome Lori W. from Georgia. 
star one to unmute, Lori. Thank you, Leah. Good morning, my fellows. This is Lori W. in Atlanta, Georgia, a grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater, living life on its terms today. Step three for me was totally about surrender. And um, it was not something that I did well in life in general. I I have a fighting nature. Um, We hear about fight or flight. I am the one that will dig in and I will fight every time, except when it comes down to food. Um, I had no fight and I had no flight. And so I stayed a victim for so long of my inability to make a decision about whether I was going to trust God or not. The big book tells us God is everything or he's nothing. You know, what, what is our choice going to be? And so I got to the point where I was sick and tired of being sick and tired about a number of things in my life. And the first thing that I addressed was the food. Um, and I struggled for years with that in program, during program, I think around 2002. But I struggled for years with that because I was trying to fight the food. And what I realized was that was not my problem. The food was not my problem. Um, there were other underlying issues in my spiritual condition. Even though I went to church each week and I was a PK and I did all the right things and a lot of the wrong things, um, I didn't have any real relationship with God that was personal. I had a, a corporate relationship within the church with it, with God, but I did not have a personal relationship. And I had to make a decision to get to know him and to accept the fact that he knew me, whether I embraced him or not. He already knew me. He already knew about my, my sins. He already knew about my poor choices. He already knew about the horrible things in my life. And I had to make a decision whether I was going to allow him to come in and fix these things and repair our relationship. Um, and that was a major decision for me. And when I decided that I was going to surrender, I was going to surrender to this big book, to this program. I was going to surrender to this way of life. Then the food became a non-issue for me um, because my focus was then on my relationship with God and not my relationship with food. And we all make decisions every day. I was in um, a very unhealthy marriage for many years, over 20 years. And one day I made a decision to get out of that. And you know what I did? I drafted my divorce decree and my, my divorce petition, and I got out of it. I made a decision and I took action on it. And do you know that these years later, it's been a few years, um, three, three or four years, I have not ever once desired to go back to the man. I've never once had a desire to rekindle that relationship because I made a decision. I made a choice. I made a healthy choice for myself. I do not miss that relationship. I do not crave it. I do not think about it. And by God's grace, I have gotten there with food uh, today that I made a decision that above all, I choose sanity. I choose God. I choose peace. And so when I made that decision, the food sometimes, as you guys know, my food substance is saltine crackers. And sometimes when life gets hard, I think, oh, it'd be great to eat a sleeve of crackers. Yes, a sleeve. Um, and that's not an honest answer because I will eat a box, eat all four sleeves. But um, 
I made a decision that I want to do things differently. And just like I would not go back on my decision about my marriage, I won't go back on my decision about food. When I feel that I want to eat something that I've made a decision will not be in my diet, it is an indicator to me that I need to pray. Something's off. Something is not balanced in my mind, in my spirit, in my emotions. And I need to talk to God about it. And so what I've learned to do is to be consistent in prayer and um, to go to God with everything. It doesn't matter how small it is. It could be about finding a parking space. This place is crowded. I need a parking space. I don't want to be late for my appointment, Lord. Can you help me? And sure enough, I see the reverse lights come on on a vehicle down the row, and I'm, I'm pulling into that space. It's about everything. There's nothing too large for God. There's nothing too small for him. And each day I have to make a decision, a choice when I wake up. Am I going to live for self or am I going to live for God? When I live for self, I'm in trouble and the world is in trouble. When I make a decision to live for God, everything may not be perfect, but everything is going to be peaceful. Even in chaos, I am able to have peace now because I made a decision that I'm no longer in control. And I depend so heavily on the spiritual foundation that this program has given because that is the only way that I can make it through the day is through the foundation, through the things and techniques that I've learned in this program. It is no longer about the food for me. It is about my being in fit spiritual condition every day, being in step with God, being in step with program, being in step with my fellows. And even when I disagree with someone or they disagree with me, I'm able to do that with complete peace because I've made a decision, not about food, but about my life and my relationship with God. And when I did that and I put things in their proper perspective, everything else has fallen into place. And each morning I get up and I make that same decision. It's like that movie, 50 First Dates, where they had to get up every day. She forgot and they had to start over. Every day I'm liable to forget. And I have to start my day over with a decision that today when my eyes pop open, I thank God for life. And I say, today I decide to live my life according to your will. Let's go by your plan today. And God has never been to a surprise party, never been to a surprise occasion. So nothing that happens in my life today is going to be a surprise to him. So I can trust that he already has it worked out. And he does not need food to carry me through the day. He needs it to nourish me and give me strength and energy. And then I need to be available for my fellows and for God to do his will. And when I'm in the food, I can't be in life. And so today it's about a decision. That's all step three is. It's a decision to surrender not my will, but thy will be done. And that is how I live my life each day with step three. Thank you for allowing me to share. Thank you very much, Lori W., for sharing this morning. Step four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. I welcome Leon B. from South Carolina. Good morning. This is Leon B., a gracefully recovered compulsive overeater from Simpsonville, South Carolina. I became aware of my food addiction somewhere around 2005 when I could not stop binging on gas station junk food. I was in med school at the time, and I looked forward to finishing my studies just so I could race to the local gas station to get these foods. Now, it was just a habit at first, 
Then it became an obsession. I would have to stop my study sessions just to go and get this sugar fix. Somewhere in somewhere around that time, I learned about OA from one of my professors, and I found a local meeting that same year, and that started my journey into this 12-step way of life. Now, mind you, this is 2005. My abstinent date is April 30th, 2018. What happened for 13 years? You know, after that first meeting, I would go in and out of the rooms for years. I did this up and down in weight, never really working these steps, making a beginning as our friend Jim did, but never enlarging my spiritual life through the working of these steps. I never made it past the third step because I thought the fourth step was just too darn difficult. The next 13 years, I was in and out of the rooms until I was completely out of ideas. And I had forgotten about OA when I came back this last time. And one day I was just, I was in despair listening to my iPhone. Don't remember what I was listening to, but I remember laying down on my bed and I sort of fell back and I accidentally turned on an LA OA podcast meeting. And this guy was singing my song. He was telling my story. And it was like that old V8 commercial where the guy would hit his head and say, I should have had a V8. I hit myself on the head. It's like, I need to go back to OA. I have tried just about every diet out there. And the lap band was going to be my next adventure, but I was too afraid that I would eat right through it. I had tried everything else, and yet I kept eating, and I could not stop. And I could not return back to my max weight. So I said, well, let me give these steps a try. So back to the rooms of OA, I went. I found a vision for you. I found a sponsor, and we went to work. You know, I had no problems accepting my powerlessness over food and the unmanageability of my life. I knew God was real. I knew his power was real, real enough to restore me to my right mind. Now, I had no clue that these steps were going to give me the key to access this power. I took the third step with my sponsor, and within a week or so, I was at step four. The steps so many years ago, I thought was too difficult. And my sponsor said to me, I cannot teach you step four better than this particular speaker will. Download his talk. Call me if you have any questions. Now, the big book says on page 64, next, we launched out on a course of vigorous action, the first step of which is a personal house cleaning. I prepared myself. No one was home at the time. And I went to work listening, pausing, rewinding, listening, pausing, rewinding, writing, and I had it down. I was ready to go, okay? I understood these columns. I understood to go down each column, first column. Who or what do you resent? That kept ringing in my ears. The speaker was ringing in my ears. Second column, what did they do to you? Write it down, 19 words or less. Some of you know who I'm imitating. Third column, how did it affect you? How did it affect your instinct or your instincts, your security, your self-esteem? your pocketbook, your sex life. I understood all that. Then this fourth column. This fourth column. Page 66, third paragraph says, we turn back to the list for it held the key to Leon Buffalo's future. Insert your name there. Page 67, third paragraph, referring to our list again, putting out of our minds the wrong others had done. We resolutely looked for our own mistakes. What did you bring to this? How did you bring this resentment about, Leon? 
What character defect was brought to the surface? Where had I, Leon, been selfish? Where had I been dishonest? Where had I been self-seeking and frightened? Where was I to blame? That fourth column was life-changing, for it was there I felt the power of God flow into me. It revealed so much truth for me. Selfishness, self-centeredness, exclamation point. That, we think, is the root of our troubles. This self-centered theme went on and on as I went down that fourth column, the pattern of selfishness and self-seeking. I remember this overwhelming feeling came over me. Failed marriages, my fault. The fact that my current wife kept saying I'm not happy, my fault. I realized right then and there I was a self-centered person. And the most important thing to me at that moment was to get God centered. The obsession was lifted right out of me as I got the revelation that I had been the source of my pain and discomfort and others' pain and discomfort for all these years. And I realized that I could be the one to fix it. I had to continue to follow these steps. Page 64 says, though our decision, what decision? That's to turn our life over to, to the care of God if you understood him. That's a decision. It's a vital and crucial step but it could have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and to be rid of the things in ourselves which have been blocking us. The last young lady said she decided to get a divorce. She wrote up her decree. She put in action. I end with this. My sponsee asked me just the other day, and I had never thought about this, how did I find the power of God and believe he would help me recover from this addiction? That was her question. I had to think about that. And my answer was, I never came to this program looking for power. I wanted to stop eating. I wanted to stop gaining. I wanted to stop hating myself. I was hoping to get a food plan, really. The power came from working these steps. I worked the steps hoping to just stop eating and gaining and what I got was unblocked and an unlimited access to power greater than me, which has solved my problems, which has been solving many of my problems. And this is the theme of the big book, page 45, read it. Step four, y'all, it unblocked me and God welcomed me back to life. And today I am walking in the sunlight of the spirit, no joke, and I pass. Thank you so much, Leon B. Step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. Sandy W. from Connecticut. Oh, thank you so much, Leah. Thank you always for your beautiful service. Yes, this is Sandy W. gratefully recovered in Connecticut. I just want to start with a quick prayer. God, please help me collect and organize my thoughts setting aside everything I think I know about the fifth step and sharing your truth as I speak today. Amen. While I'm a little bit nervous, I'm also so excited to be sharing my step five experience because it truly was the most life-changing of the steps for me and where I first deeply felt the presence of God, and that is how I refer to my higher power. Um, as Leon so beautifully described, you know, writing out my inventories, it was certainly therapeutic and it really forced me to look at 
my part in those resentments I was holding on to and to see uh, the futility of my fears and acknowledge all the harms I'd done. And, and seeing this all in writing was certainly difficult, but nowhere near as hard for me as the thought of admitting this to another. That scared the life out of me. Um, I, from a very young age, lived the double life that the big book speaks of. You know, as an overweight child, I learned that I wasn't acceptable or lovable as I was, so I became who I thought you wanted me to be. You know, I didn't realize until I got to this step what a toll that had taken on me, you know, trying to keep up that facade of being happy and healthy and having it all together, when really inside I was such a mess. Um, you know, I used eating and restricting and over-exercising and laxatives as my solution to that deep inner belief that I was unlovable and unacceptable as I was, that if I could just stay at a normal weight and keep that fake smile plastered on my face and have a lighthearted spirit, maybe someone would fall for the act and love me anyway. Um, so as much as I wanted to recover and as desperate as I was to have what I heard and so many of you on this line, um, I really wanted to find a way around this step. But thankfully, the big book clearly says, and my sponsor certainly drilled home the fact that if we skip this step, we may not overcome our addiction. And the 12 and 12 also says, you know, scarcely any step is more necessary to long-time sobriety and peace of mind as step five. So I begrudgingly um, and a little unwillingly went on um, fearful that this um, process would teach me the humility and the fearlessness and the honesty that was so lacking in my life. Um, so I first did a fifth step with my sponsor. You know, I, I still joke that in my disease, I'd have rather told you the intricate, intricate details of my sex life than what I had eaten the night before. So the thought of opening up not only about what I did with food or to get food or to hide the evidence of my eating, but also all those defects and all the terrible, hurtful things I'd done and said to others, well, that was a little more than scary for me, but, um, but in hindsight, now I can look back and see how humbling and cleansing it was. And, and when my sponsor did not sound repulsed by it all, um, but instead listened with a sympathetic ear and explained that my character flaws were how I coped in a world that I didn't understand and that made no sense to me, you know, when she said, I've done those things too, um, I've been there, first of all, I was shocked. But um, as it slowly sunk in and I regained my composure, I felt truly accepted in a way I'd never had before. Um, this experience of doing my fifth step with my sponsor let me know for the first time that someone could love and accept me even if they truly knew me and all my deep, dark secrets. Um, this was a concept I'd given up on many, many years before. Um, I also chose to speak with my pastor as part of my fifth step. You know, the big book also mentions talking to someone within our faith for those of us belonging to a religious denomination. You know, I was also kind of separately then on a path of exploring religion in my life. And, and while I in nowhere, no way feel it is necessary to fully recover, and I've worked with others have, who have beautiful recovery without doing so, it was part of my journey. And, and I felt the power of God so intensely when I heard my pastor say, your sins are forgiven. 
you know, really similar to my expectation in, in sharing my step five with my sponsor. I expected my priest to laugh and throw me out of his office. But instead, again, I was met with love and acceptance. Um, and just as the big book promised, don't you just love how those promises come true, even when we can't imagine that they could? You know, when I pocketed my pride and withheld nothing, as terrifying as that was, I was delighted. I could finally look the world in the eye. I could be alone at perfect peace and ease. My fears began to fall from me. Um, I began to feel the nearness of my creator. And while I'd had certain spiritual beliefs, now I began, began to have that promised spiritual experience. Um, I slowly began to feel the obsession around food being removed. Walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe on the broad highway finally became a reality for me. You know, if I had any doubt before when asked if God was or he wasn't, if he was everything or nothing, I could now say without a doubt that I was all in, team God all the way. Um, and just in finishing up, I was, I was recently in a conversation about the baggage we bring to relationships, to recovery, to, I guess, to life in general. And it was suggested to me to think of it as luggage instead of baggage. And I began to love that reframing. You know, I thought about, as I thought about it, first kind of with a chuckle about how we can unpack our luggage, because I thought about how I immediately unpack my luggage after I return from a trip. But it's more eventually that my husband does his. But regardless, if it's un regardless of the timing when it's packed and unpacked, you know, we can repack it to meet the destination that, that we're going to, the new destination. And, you know, the luggage I brought to program was certainly over the weight limit as it included so much resentment and fear and misconduct that, as of course, as I learned through my work in the steps, there was no room for God. But step five began the work of the unpacking that luggage and guided me right to the perfect way to repack it with a power who could and would relieve my compulsive overeating if he were sought. So may, may we seek him now, and um, um, well, enough of me. May we continue on with these steps. So thanks so much for the opportunity to be a part of this meeting, and happy anniversary to us. With that, I'll pass. Thanks again, Leah. Thank you, Sandy W. Step six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. And I welcome Adam D. from Missouri. Good morning. I'm Adam, a compulsive overeater. Uh, thank you, Leah. Um, can you hear me? I hear you well. Excellent. Uh, how how uh, step six has been life-changing and, and the sort of impact it's had on my transformation is a, a curious thing to consider. Uh, you know, our, our, uh, as we recover, putting aside the food, uh, I think it's in our invitation to you. Uh, you know, we move beyond the food into this fuller living experience. And and this, for me, uh, you know, this is all about change. Uh, this whole process is about change and, and uh, uh, renewal, uh, uh, recovery, um, awakening. Um, a, a moral psychic change uh, is taking place. And, and I think this is kind of the, the meat of it. Uh, having done an inventory, uh, getting a better uh, understanding of who I am, 
uh, how I show up in relationships, how, how selfish I am, uh, how afraid I am, uh, what, what are my core beliefs about you, about the world, about myself, and how, how am I showing up. And this, this I, I'm, I'm discovering uh, that this is what self-reliance looks like for me. And, and when I come here to step six, uh, I went home the very first time I did this, and I took the book down from the shelf, and I sat quietly for an hour. And I was like, well, you know, okay, this isn't really working. I can't envision this new life right now sitting here. I'm, you know, it was good, but I, I still felt that, okay, now what? I, I, I kind of felt, you know, okay, what happens next? Um and and uh, basically we continue. Uh, and I've discovered what happens next. Um, we're entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character. Um, and I look at the idea of being entirely ready. Um, and and also I think of the spiritual principle uh, in step six being willingness. Um, am I entirely ready uh, today? Am I if I if I have a, a, a hot steaming inventory? Am I really entirely ready to have my higher power remove all these things well we'll see um occasionally i go back in and write write new inventory uh, of course that's what we do um now now when i do that i think of the step six um and a, and a sponsor of mine uh you know he and i studied this and he suggested uh, willingness or being entirely ready how about sincerity you know, how about, how about sincerely acting as if? How about sincerely uh, showing up here? You know, how about, how about a real proper attitude here as we show up um, in, this, in this area that, that we're tangled up in? Um, self-reliance. Again, that's all my inventory stuff. It was, it was gritty, messy, uh, you know, the, 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 the drama, uh, uh, all the all the chaos that my life was and self-will, self-reliance, uh, spiritually sick. The sponsor might suggest self-reliance, uh, the definition of that. My intellect backed up by my willpower, guided by my fears. That's, that's how I'm going to show up. Um, so again, in relationships, I can talk about one relationship in particular, uh, my son, I have, I have a 22-year-old son, uh, and I love my son. And, and I ask, am I loving, kind, and tolerant? Oh, yeah, I love him so much. Well, he informs me that he's, he's found religion. I'm going to stop going to college. I'm going to walk this path, this new spiritual path. It's, it's just wonderful. And he's on fire. He's got that sorry look in his eyes. He's no job, no money. And am I being loving, kind, and tolerant when he tells me this? Absolutely not. I'm just, just scared. I'm actually angry. Uh, I'm, I'm judgmental. Uh, I'm, I've got all this prejudice. I'm intolerant. Uh, you know, you're going to end up living on the street. You're going to, you know, and really what I discover going through some column work with a sponsor uh, yet again, I discover what I have no concept of God's vision for me or my son in any of this. Again, my intellect backed by my willpower 
guided by my fears. You should be in college. You should have a job. You should, you should, you know, selfish, self-seeking, afraid, self-reliant. Uh, I have a choice to make here. You know, this, this different attitude in step six. I've been parenting that way in self-reliance since he was born. Now, I'm not a complete monster. I've been a monster. But I've, I am growing, and I continue growing in this light. I have an opportunity today to say, okay, God, what's character look like here? How am I to love my son without condition? What's that going to look like? My sponsor suggested I kind of go on a lockdown. You don't call your son. You don't arrange a, a time to sit with your son, to visit your son, unless you talk to someone first to make sure you're in fit spiritual condition. How am I going to show up? You know, what, what principles am I going to bring to the table when I sit with my son? You know, I'm entirely ready for God to remove these defects of character. Uh, and, and this is and this is part of the process for me. You know, continuing this opening, this this new way, this new this new. Uh, you know, I can rely on this on this intuition, this this God consciousness. I'm entirely ready. Um, thanks for listening. Thank you very much, Adam D. And step seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. I welcome Marie J. from Colorado. Thank you, Leah. This is Marie J., and I'm a recovered compulsive reader in Colorado. And I'm so grateful to do step seven. Gosh, I love this step. Um, because this step is about humility, which was really news to me just a few years ago. So I've been in program a long time. And in the early days of my recovery, <clears throat> I thought this was just about getting my character defects removed. And I never really even saw the word humbly in this sentence. That's how much humility I lacked. And it's really a hard thing to understand for me, this compulsive control freak. So the 12, the 12 and 12 says that humility is the fundamental principle in all 12 of these steps. And so that's what I looked at. You know, humility's definition is um, a modest view of one's own importance so clear, so simple. And for me, my whole life, I thought that I didn't matter. So I thought I had a modest view of myself and that wasn't a stretch for me. You know, I wasn't arrogant. I had a real low opinion of myself, but it turns out that that's also part of my disease. And my low view of myself was tied to this character defect of self-loathing and non-acceptance. And as long as I believed myself to be less than, I was really slapping God in the face. I, uh, there's a saying that's been uh, an expression that's been around. I haven't heard it in a long time currently, but way back in the 90s, people were always saying, well, God doesn't make any junk. You know, I'm not junk. And if I think badly of myself, then I'm resistant to God's will for me. And God's will for me is to live in love and to spread it around. But if I lack self-love, then I don't have anything to give. I don't have anything to spread around. I don't have anything to share. So by resisting God in this way, refusing to love and accept myself, I play God. I take charge and say, okay, God, I'll do your will over here, and I'll do all these things and comply with all these rules. But if I really want to recover, I have to be all in 
I don't get to pick and choose what I'm willing to give to God. God gets all of me to the best of my ability. And every day it's a new thing. Every day I got to reinforce giving it all to God. So humility is a really um, hard practice. It's a hard concept to understand. And I really failed at this step over and over because I have this powerful ego that demands to be fed. And this is part of the human condition. We all want to be admired and esteemed. We all have that diseased voice in our head demanding attention. I want more, I want more, I want more, I need more, I need more from you. And that's what blocks my humility. Um, Rami Shapiro uh, has this beautiful quote in his book on Step 7, and he says, we can't achieve humility. Achievement generates pride. It doesn't generate humility. So how do I get to humility? And he says humility is something that we awaken to when we see the truth of who we are and how distant we are from who we can become. Oh, my gosh, I love that. You know, humility is the gift we're given. We're given through the depths of our suffering. And the suffering is the result of seeing who we are seeing the truth about how we are and how we behave in the world. And I can't make myself humble because that involves self-will. That involves ego. And humanity or humility is, is devoid of self-seeking motives. It's devoid of self-will. It's devoid of self-reliance. There's no self-righteousness in humility. So I can't make it happen with my ego. It can only rise in me. And it, it rises in me in all of these steps. So it rises in me when I discover and accept that I'm powerless in step one. It rises in me when I come to believe in a power greater than me without any proof of that power's existence. And that's step two. And it ultimately rises in me in step three when I jump in all the way without knowing if there's a net, but trusting and building faith. That's humility. And I have to let go of everything I think I know. I have to let go of all of my certainty and put my life in this unexplainable and uncertain higher power. And if I believe, which I did for most of my life, that I can live on my own intelligence and my own self-will, then I completely, I completely eliminate the idea of faith and reliance on higher power. And therefore, make reliance on God an impossibility. So I completely negate those first three steps. And it's going to get harder in steps four through six, where I have to continue to be humble and do an inventory and look at myself and look at the wreckage of my past and look at my character defects. But one thing I always have to remind myself is that this is spiritual progress. It's not perfection. It's not me being perfect at this humility, it's about the effort that I make. It's about the sincerity. It's about the motivation that I have behind it and not doing it perfectly, but practicing it to the best of my ability. So by the time I get to step six, I'm pretty clear about how I've been behaving, been behaving in the world and toward other people and what my character liabilities are. And I have to accept who I have been. And how I control and manage everyone's lives, even today it comes up. Because it, it's my ego wanting to meet its program for happiness. 
and I'm ruining other lives in the process. And so in order to receive this gift of humility, I have to see the falsehood of that thinking that I'm in charge of everything, of living that way of life that I'm in charge. And I can then in step seven, truly and humbly desire God to change me because that's the only thing that needs to be changed, me, my thoughts, my behavior in the world. And for me, I lack humility any time that I think I have the answers, when I have an idea about how things should be. That's when I'm playing God, and that's when I'm in control. That's when I'm running the show. And when I get clarity in the moment of acting out in those character defects and seeing my disease in charge, I can begin to see how distant I am from the person I could be, the person who God wants me to be. And if I can see that in the moment, humility can waken, awaken in me and rise up, and I can ask God to remove those shortcomings. So today my mantra is, I don't know. That's it. That's how I live. I don't know. Those are hard words for me to say because I am a control freak. I want to know, I want to figure out, and I want to be in charge. But if I live by I don't know, to not know is to not have the answers for everybody else's lives. It's not to have the answers for my own life. It's living in humility and letting God be in charge. And to give that gift or to give that job to God, to know for me, to show me the way, that is the path to my waking, awaking the humility in me. And I do that to the best of my ability, just one day at a time, loving myself when I fail. Because I fail often. Humility is difficult. I fail often. I fall down, and I get in charge again, and my ego gets in there. But that's the spiritual path. Every day, allowing God to awaken the humility in me so that I can turn my life over. And that's all I've got. Thank you. Thank you very much, Marie J. Step eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Leslie W. from Tennessee. Thanks, Leah. I'm Leslie W., recovered compulsive overeater in Tennessee. Every AA has found that he can make little headway in this new adventure of living until he first backtracks and really makes an accurate and unsparing survey of the human wreckage he has left in his wake. To a degree, he has already done this when taking moral inventory, but now the time has come when he ought to redouble his efforts and see how many people he has hurt and in what ways. This reopening of emotional wounds, some old, some perhaps forgotten, and some still painfully festering, will at first look like a purposeless and pointless piece of surgery. But if a willing start is made, then the great advantages of doing this will so quickly reveal themselves that the pain will be lessened as one obstacle after another melts away. And that's from the AA 12 and 12, page 77 and 78. And, you know, after com- completing my four-step inventory and giving away my fifth step, I really did begin to feel a lot of relief. And when I approached step eight, Going back to the inventory and writing a list of those who, whom I had harmed really felt scary. It felt like uh, an exercise in futility and punishment. I really didn't understand, you know, why I needed to do this and avoided it for a while. Why reopen those wounds, I thought. Why not just move forward? Why can't we just let bygones be bygones? And what I didn't know 
was that the way to move forward was to go back. And I just wanted to use this time to go through a few obstacles and benefits uh, that I experienced with this step. Um, my obstacles to completing the eighth step, number one, um, harboring resentment and unforgiveness. The AA 12 and 12 says to escape looking at the wrongs we have done and other we resentfully focus on the wrong he has done us. This is especially true if he has behaved badly. Triumphantly, we seize upon his misbehavior as the perfect excuse for minimizing or forgetting our own, page 78. Um, I really found this to be true with my sister and my husband especially. I kept an ongoing scorecard in my head of their wrongs against me, and it prevented me from gaining release from this resentment. I made the mistake of going to my sister and trying to make amends with her before I forgave her, and I ended up having to repeat that amends. The big book on page 78 says, we take the bit in our teeth with the person that we dislike. And if we haven't the will to do this, then we ask until it comes. The second is pride, the second obstacle. It has been embarrassing enough when, when in confidence we had admitted these things to God, ourselves, and to another human being. But the prospect of actually visiting or even writing the people concerned now overwhelmed us, especially when we remembered in what poor fit we stood with them that was from AA 12 and 12, page 79. I found this to be true when I had to make a uh, face-to-face amends with a neighbor to apologize for gossiping about her on social media. And she found out about it. I really did not want to face her. Um, I wanted to just let it go, but I hurt her. And I have to say it was quite a humbling experience that, that taught me an important lesson. Think long and hard. Uh, before gossiping or saying something which might hurt someone else because there will be an amends to make later. The third obstacle, dishonesty. We we clung to the claim that when drinking, we never hurt anybody but ourselves. Our families didn't suffer because we always paid bills and seldom drank at home. Our business associates didn't suffer because we were usually on the job. Our reputations hadn't suffered because we were certain a few people knew of our drinking. This attitude, of course, is the end result of purposeful forgetting, page 79. And I related to this in terms of my compulsive overeating because I really believe that my compulsive overeating habit only hurt me. I didn't realize that it was affecting others. Um, I thought that it was my body, therefore I had the right to do whatever I wanted to do with it, right? But my selfishness, it manifests not only in the abuse of my body, but in the abuse of my husband especially. He suffered the most because in my shame, I hid from him and shut down and ignored his needs and damaged that relationship, Um, which I am now, which has now been and is still being restored. Thanks to God. The benefits, though, to completing the eighth step, number one, ridding ourselves of excuses to go back to the food. Since defective relations with other human beings have nearly always been the immediate cause of our woes, including our alcoholism, no field of investigation could yield more satisfying and valuable rewards than this one. That's from page 80 of the AA 12 and 12. The better our relationships with other humans, this is my take on it, the less likely we are to turn to the food for comfort because we will feel at peace with ourselves and with them. Number two, the second benefit to completing this step, lessening the pain. At the time of these occurrences, emotional conflicts, that is, they may actually have given our emotions violent twists, which have since discolored our personalities and altered our lives for the worse. That's from page 80 of the 12 and 12. 
you know, the hurt and pain that I inflicted upon my, and I did inflict it upon myself, was deep. And I found that those amends that I was w- willing to make healed me as well. And once their hold on me, once the resentments, the hold on me was gone, I could begin to pursue the things in life that truly mattered to me and become my true self once again. It took away that deep pain. The third benefit is the end of isolation. The 12 and 12 on page 82 says, whenever our pencil falters, we can fortify and cheer ourselves by remembering what AA experience in this step has meant to others. It is the beginning of the end of isolation from our fellows and from God. And that is the OA experience for me, especially within, especially within this Vision for You meeting. In my disease, I was isolated, as we all are, and separate from God and my fellows. Completing this step was the beginning of the end of my separateness, and it opened a pathway to belonging and contributing to the world. For after all, the big book on page 77 says that my real purpose is to fit myself to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. And in late 2015, early 2016, when I found this Vision for You meeting, um, I had a toddler and a baby on my hip and a husband with one foot out the door. And God gave me the gift of vision for you and showed me that it is possible to recover. And I don't think I would be here today. I would not be here today um, if it weren't for that. And I just am so incredibly grateful. And I thank you, Leah, for giving me this opportunity to be of service at my path. Thank you so much, Leslie W. Step nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible except one to do so would injure them or others. I welcome Penny L.C. from California. Thank you, Leah. This is Penny L.C., a grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater, actually from the state of Washington. Um, And step nine, making my amends. For me, this step is where willingness, again, comes in. Since this is the last of the action steps, four through nine, I had to be willing to continue to take more action. As the big book prayer given on page 79, reflecting on my commitment to willingness states, reminding ourselves that we have decided to go to any lengths to find a spiritual experience, we ask that we be given the strength and direction to do the right thing, no matter what the personal consequences may be. For me, the strongest choice of focus was needed. This is where courage came in. The courage to do my higher power's will for me and to change the things I can. This was required, asked for, and I received this from my higher power. For me, the right attitude was crucial. This is where humility was imperative again requested and granted by my higher power. As the big book states on page 77, our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. And for me, this meant going forward with making my amends. For me, the correct approach was vital. This is where love made the difference. Experiencing unconditional love from my higher power allowed me to turn to those I owed amends to 
with love in my heart. This love I wanted to use as a vehicle for delivering my amends. With an open heart, I was able to share my truth honestly as I gave my amends. I intentionally began the process with the easier ones on my list. I was surprised at the responses being so favorable, often with the outcome of the amends, including the recipient thanking me, whether I was given their forgiveness or not, in each case, I experienced a release and a sense of relief with each amend. The positive results propelled me to do more amends. Each time I was blessed with a measure of freedom and it gave me the incentive to continue on through my list to and through the most challenging ones. The amends that stands out to me was to my father. We had had an estranged and or distant relationship most of my life. I had been unkind and unfair to him at times, needless to say, unloving. I went into making the amends, fortunately, without any expectations. I was amazed when he graciously expressed his gratitude to me. Then I was astonished when he took the opportunity to return his amends to me, which I never thought would come. As a result, we were able to develop a connection during the last years of his life. When he passed away, I had no regrets and a sense of peace. The freedom from the freedom experienced from this and every amends that I gave released me from decades of mental and emotional baggage, torture, and pain. And the peace received was, has carried forward with me in my recovered life. In some instances where restitution was called for and done, regardless of the cost. My conscience was absolved from years of shame, guilt, and regret. The overall execution of my amends fostered a healing, a greater sense of trust in my higher power, and an increased practice of reliance on my higher power. I felt connected and that my higher power was there to walk with me through each amends and to keep me feeling protected and safe. In the spirit of step nine, I was able to take the consequences of my past actions and take responsibility for the well-being of others successfully. I'm grateful to be a recovered compulsive overeater, to have gone through the amends journey and to have felt it strengthen my character. I am also grateful to continue forward, making my amends, my living amends, on a daily basis, especially to my closest loved ones, by choosing to be abstinent, by looking to my higher power for direction, by seeking to be what my higher power would have me be, and by practicing patience, tolerance, kindliness, and love. Then. 
I was able to experience the ninth step promises found on page 83 and 84 in the big book and continue to live in them daily. I am amazed. I do know a new freedom and a new happiness. I don't regret my path nor wish to shut the door on it. I do comprehend serenity and I do know peace. I do see how my experience can benefit others as I go forward in service. And that feeling of uselessness and self-pity has disappeared. I have lost interest in selfish things and gained interest in my fellows. Self-seeking has slipped away. My whole attitude and outlook upon life has changed. Fear of people and of economic insecurity has left me. I do intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle me. I have realized that God is doing for me what I couldn't and can't do for myself. The promises have materialized for me. Step nine has changed me, and I am blessed. Thank you for having me share, and with that, I pass. Thank you, Penny L.C. from Washington, for your share. Step 10, continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. I welcome Dawn B. from California. Good morning, Leah. This is Dawn B., recovered compulsive overeater from Southern California. I My OA journey started way back in 1978 in January. Uh, I was in school at the time and was listening to a person come over and speak. He was a doctor who worked at Mayo Clinic with people with eating disorders. And he'd come over and somebody asked him, what's the best uh, program out there for losing weight? And his response after giving it some thought, he said, for the long haul, uh, it would be Overeaters Anonymous. And at that point, I said, I don't know what that is, but that's for me. And ever since then, I have uh, been in Overeaters Anonymous. So that's decades of being in Overeaters Anonymous. But the fact is, is that I struggle to string together any um, length of time, any significant length of time of abstinence. So fast forward um, seven years ago, I was able to finally put down the food and become abstinent and work the steps and uh, receive the benefits from that. But it was uh, about a year ago that I was in a workshop by Harlan G. And with tears rolling down my face and um, I was abstinent. So I thought, what's the deal? Why am I crying? And um, I realized that my emotional sobriety, abstinence certainly is not enough. I needed emotional sobriety. And I felt that there were things going on in my life that I simply could not get past. I have uh, four children, four children, young adult children. Three of them have autism, and two of them also have mental illness. And I was thinking this is something I simply cannot get past. I can't be happy. Uh, I can't enjoy life because this took place. And I'm sure many of listening on the line are thinking there's certain things 
you know, if, perhaps if you haven't um, worked, uh, gotten that emotional sobriety, there's certain things in your life you just can't get past. And uh, that's certainly what I was thinking. So what I did is I started listening to Vision, which I heard about through Harlan and have been listening every single day since then. I got a sponsor right away with the steps like my hair was on fire and beautiful gifts of the program started just spilling out. And one of those most profound gifts was that of step 10. Um, prior, I just didn't really know what step 10 was. And I mean, I didn't think that I would ever be able to or would want to um, work it on a daily basis, which is what I do now. And it just has treasures there. And the treasure is found in emotional sobriety. So I work at step 10 anytime I'm thinking that um, when my thinking starts to go, you know, off center, it's not peaceful. It's not, there's things getting in the way of my connection with my higher power. Uh, anytime I'm worrying about uh, something, I'm resentful about something, um, that's when I do a, te- a step 10. And what step 10 does is it restores my emotional sobriety. I never knew that there was such a powerful method out there, an amazing step to bring about emotional sobriety, to clear away any block that is uh, there between myself and my higher power. What I need for peace of mind is not for my circumstances. What I'm learning through practicing this step 10 is that my circumstances, things outside of myself, aren't what determine my peace of mind. My peace of mind comes exclusively from the uh, quality of my connection with my higher power. And that is what I'm learning about. So what do I do with the 10th step? I, it starts out um, that I will briefly identify, just give a headline. I like as Harlan says, just give a headline of what's going on. I don't go into depth about what's going on because I don't want to refeel uh, the word resentment comes from refeeling something. So anything is rolling around in my mind. I don't want to, uh, you know, focus on what the problem is. I want to just basically give a brief sentence what's going on in a few words. And then what I do, the important part, what I want to spend the most time on is not rehashing why I'm upset, uh, why I'm fearful, but what I look at is what is my part. How am I being selfish, self-centered, self-seeking, dishonest? And um, the uh, humorous now uh, about it, uh, thing about it is that I didn't think that this really applied to me. So step 10, you know, um, looking at my selfishness, my dishonesty, well, I'm really not a selfish person. I thought, well, I'm really not a dishonest person, so that doesn't really have a lot to do with me. But um, after looking at uh, my character defects more in depth, realizing that selfishness is just me wanting my way. Selfishness is me trying to play God and force my will. Um, Self-seeking when I'm trying to play God, force my will by trying to control others. Or when I'm getting my value from other people's behavior, when I'm trying to... um, you know, have them act a certain way so that I can feel good about myself. Um, Or dishonesty. I thought, well, I'm not a dishonest person, but dishonesty is whenever I'm telling myself things that simply are not true. 
and some of the things I found I was telling myself over and over that simply wasn't true was one that you're responsible for my behavior. It's your fault that I'm upset. And I realize now that that is just simply not true. I am, if I'm upset, if there's a problem, I'm the problem. Uh, other things I tell myself that simply are not true. Uh, I think I know better than my higher power the way life needs to look right now. And, um, and that's why I'm upset. That uh, I have no choice. I have to be upset over that. Well, that's simply not true. Um, but this must change before I can be happy. That's dishonest. It's not true. So after looking at my part and seeing how I might be trying to play the higher power, I, um, I uh, realized that what I need to do then is to ask my higher power to remove this and then um, talk it over with someone else. And it's an amazing thing, step 10, and I'll end with this. It's an amazing thing that after doing this process, I can be returned to emotional sobriety. What a powerful gift. I now have this armor that I can carry throughout the day that uh, will return me to my right relationship with my higher power, return this peace of mind and emotional sobriety. What a beautiful gift step 10 is. Thank you, and I pass. Thank you very much, Dawn B. Step 11, thought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Julie B. E.B. from Colorado. Hi, this is Julie E.B., gratefully recovered today in... um, Colorado, Um, and I'm so grateful to this meeting, and happy anniversary uh, to all of us, and especially those who have done such faithful service um, with this meeting and shared their experience, strength, and hope from the newcomer to the person who's been here the longest. Um, Each of you has been a blessing to me. Um, This 11th step um, is something that uh, when I would hear it, when I first came in the rooms, and uh, I came in quite broken, you know, 300 pounds, bed-bound, six medical specialists, 42 years old, and um, dying. Um, would never have lived to see uh, my 50th birthday next month. Uh, but I came into these rooms, and I would hear these later steps. And the first thing I really want to encourage is my experience, strength, and hope is don't start at 11, don't start at 9, don't start at... Uh, the end. Uh, <laughs> it's not how it worked for me. I entered the rooms. I was loved by people who understood uh, my sick body and my sick mind. My vision sponsor came in. There was something different in her eyes. And I started with a basic abstinence and um, and started reading this book and became more and more willing and open to lay down these st- uh, lay down uh, both the food and uh, and these different pieces take these steps along the way. Um, but I had always wanted to be a person that was about getting to the end, you know, the end of the diet so I could eat again, the end of uh, the road. So I had arrived. And this is not a program of ending, but a beginning. And that's what this 11 step says to me. Um, all I need to uh, begin this work 
um, is is just a willingness uh, to try and trust that there is something out there bigger than me, and that's not easy for any of us. But I did have the idea that when I got through step nine and could claim the word recovered, as we talk about it on this line, that once again I would be arrived, I would be at the destination, I would be at the end. Same old ego. Um, I had quiet food, a quiet mind, a safe place deep and within where the God I had requested would care for and protect me with complete abandon was doing so. But then life would happen. And as I had lived so often, life seemed to hit me from the outside in and I would be buffeted. And I, I knew deep within there was this awareness of a higher power who is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Um, but <laughs> life would happen. And so I would start doing these 10 steps and embarking on this thing that we call living in steps 10, 11, and 12. And, uh, and so as I did these 10 steps, I would once again discover some of the things that we agnostics talk about. You see, I had a conception of God, but think about conception. That's those first few cells that are going to become a life, you know. Uh, the conception of God is, is the beginning. It is not at all the ending. And so I had that. I had those first few uh, cells, but uh, this God would soon uh, seemed to be inadequate in some ways. As I did my 10 steps, I would reveal what we agnostics call my handicaps, my obstinacy, my sensitiveness, my unreasoning prejudice. I would find dishonesties. I would find myself back in character defects. I would find myself in fear about the future resentment, about the past, guilt about harms done to me. And so what would I do? And here's this beautiful step 11. And it sounds so fancy, prayer and meditation. I came from um, a religious training background. There were, I could say, the fanciest prayer there was in the book. I could uh, meditate, although <laughs> I can't say being still and meditating is one of my uh, dominant traits. Uh, mostly I do a walking or moving meditation. And um, But uh, now that I'm doing these tens and these open areas are becoming clear to me, these areas um, of struggle, um, I would need to do this 11th step. This is the how and why of it. And that is the why. Because I was, in fact, only at the beginning. And I would need to continue. And the book makes it simple. Simple, not easy, it says. The morning awakening prayer. I get out of bed. I'm already listening to the earliest meeting here in Mountain Time. And uh, as I do the awakening prayer, I'm giving God my plans. I'm clearing the deck. I'm questioning my motives. Um, and uh, looking for self-pity, dishonest, and self-seeking. I'm placing my day in front of my higher power, knowing that some of the things I do are going to be mistakes, absurd thoughts and actions that I'm going to pursue. Some of these things will be, in fact, mistakes, um, but I will pursue them uh, and then I will bay back with my higher power. I become aware in the awakening prayer that, like it says here, we're praying only for the knowledge of his will for us, the power to carry it out. It says in the 11th step awakening prayer, just for the next step and what it takes to get there. This is where I came to realize I don't even have what it takes 
to get through my day as I start through my day. I still need to pray for the power, for the ability, for what God will do for me that I cannot do for myself. And then as the 11th step goes on to say, I pause as I go throughout the day, sometimes setting alarms, sometimes having meditations or phrases I've heard on the line or in the book pop up on my phone, pause when irritated and doubtful. Whenever I moved away from that place of quiet food, quiet mind, quiet sense of spiritual safety within myself, irritating, doubtful. What do I do? I go back to the phrase that battles my ego. I go back to that phrase of humbly asking for the next right thought or action um, and reminding myself many times I'm not running the show. This is the spiritual truth that is the vein that runs through my spiritual life. And then in the uh, end of the night, I do the review, just um, what the book says, but I'm privileged to be a part of 11-step train uh, because of the service of someone in our um, community here at Vision. I have a different partner every couple weeks, and so not only do I do this review, I share it with another who gives me spiritual insight and feedback um, that I may be blind to um, as this goes along. And so I'm not arriving. I'm just beginning. My conception of this higher power continues to grow, and I have new spiritual experiences and on occasion awakenings uh, that are sufficient to realign me um, with a higher power that is able um, to move me through my day. Uh, close with an example. Um, I was uh, moving down the trail in meditation. This dog popped up in front of me. I was startled. My old defects, that would make me fume. That would make me angry because I'm deeply scared of dogs. And I jumped, and I would usually say rude things to the owners. This dog popped up in front of me. Now, should I be scared? It is a large poodle. Uh, I look over to the owner, who I see almost daily on my on my walk, and uh, she looks at me, she says, what are you scared? I said, I'm scared of dogs, which is the simple phrase I use now. And uh, she said, what are you scared of? You know him. Once again, a spiritual experience. Once again, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, why am I sitting here pouring over a fear I have about my young adult and teenage children? I know my higher power. I know my higher power is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. I have these fears when I'm startled. But if I know my higher power, not just is bigger, but deeper, then I don't have to go there anymore. Thanks for letting me share. And I pass. Thank you, Julie E.B. And we're now at step 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive readers and to practice these principles in all our affairs. And I welcome John Kay from California. Thanks, Leah. This is John Kiernan, a recovered compulsive overeater in Los Angeles. You know, I've always joked that I felt that this is actually two steps, but that when Bill finished and counted them up and realized it was 13, he said, oh, okay, i got to just jam these last two together. What <laughs> um, I was taught early on uh, that it's also the most misread step when people read the steps aloud, that it is the result of these steps, not a result. And I was taught that that's not just a little semantic 
you know, nitpicking, but that we get one real result, which is a spiritual awakening from which all else flows. And, and for me, you know, that spiritual awakening has given me the ability to get out of myself, you know, you know, we, we come here and we learn to think of others, you know, not just ourselves. Sometimes to think of others instead of ourselves, you know. And for me, I, I do this by working with others on many levels and of carrying the message and of, of doing service, you know, because I was taught if I'm having problems, get out of myself. They taught me, trust God, clean house, help another person. You know, they told me that if you're having a bad day emotionally, you're having a fight with your spouse, or you're climbing the walls because you're newly abstinent and the food is calling, I was taught to pick up the phone. Pick up the phone and call someone. And when they answer to say, how are you doing? You know, get out of myself. And, and you know, I do a lot of service in program, and, and, and I can't say it any better than what Dr. Bob says in Dr. Bob's Nightmare. He says, I spent a great deal of my time passing on what I learned to others who want it and need it badly, and I do it for four reasons. One, a sense of duty. Two, it is a pleasure. Three, because in doing so, I am paying my debt to the man who took the time to pass it on to me. And four, because every time I do it, I take out a little more insurance for myself against a possible slip. And for me, I got to remember all of the people who were in that chain who did service so that I could be here today, you know, from Bill and Bob to Jim from who started Gamblers Anonymous to Roseanne, who started OA, to Dale Kay from Westport, Connecticut, who had an answering machine in his garage in 1981 so that I could find out how to get to my first meeting. And, and one of the reasons I really do this is I am so grateful and thankful that I live today when there is an OA, when there is an AA, when there aren't 12 steps. Because if I would lived 100 years ago, I'd be dead. I'd have been dead for 30 years probably, you know. And I can't pay, uh, you know, I cannot repay those people, but I can pay it forward, as they say. You know, that when that movie came out, I, I laughed and said, well, we've been doing that in 12-step programs for years, you know. Because when I was newly sober, you know, I didn't have a car. When I came in, I actually had a moped. Uh, I was 300 pounds with a moped, and I killed it. <laughs> you know, cruelty to motor vehicles. Well, guess what? People gave me rides. And they didn't just give me a ride home for meetings. They came and picked me up, took me to meetings, and brought me home. And so I remember that. And I'm so grateful for that, you know. And we need to keep this chain of service going. And, and you know, I say Harlan's really big on this, that, that we don't do a great job sponsorship-wise, you know. And I was told early on that to be on, uh, never be on, either end of a, of a sponsorship chain, to be a person without a sponsor or to be a sponsee for very long without being a sponsor in, in turn. And I also try to, uh, you know, carry the message and, and to pass the message. You know, I, I will do 12-step within calls. I, you know, people, all of a sudden, you don't see them at meetings that you've been seeing for a long time or you don't hear them. And, you know, nobody ever stands up in a meeting and announces, oh, I'm leaving program. But I'll, I'll make a call, but I'll make it in very lightly and just say, hey, I want you to know I'm here if you want to talk or anything like that. And because I know I, I, you can't beat people over the head with it, and, and even with people that uh, are new or who need it, you know. As it said in page 96, you know, we find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you, you know, because it's all about surrender at the end of the day. You know, some people may have more eating to do, you know, because this is, 
this is not a program for who want, for people who want it, or for people who need it, and for people who do it. You know? I always say OA is not T-ball. <laughs> you know, you don't get a trophy for just showing up. But then the second part of step 12, uh, to practice these principles in all my affairs. This, this to me, is, is what it's all about. You know, I sit here and sound great on this phone thing this morning and then go off and get in the car and drive and cut somebody off in traffic and give them the finger, come back and yell at my wife, or kick the dog or whatever. There's, that's all the other stuff is to them just blah, blah, you know. And the thing is that living a 12-step life means holding yourself up to higher standards, you know, amongst a lot of people who aren't at that higher standard, but I want this, you know, and why, because I'm so grateful for the changes that have happened in me. I used to be so angry, and I was suspicious and untrusting, because I was raised with an alcoholic family that went through life in a defensive crouch, but I don't want to live that way anymore, you know, does that mean sometimes I might get taken advantage of? Yeah, but I'd rather have that than to live the way I did, you know, because the program taught me, an, you know, a new way of living, and the first thing I had to do was to unlearn the ways I was uh, given as a kid, you know. And moving to L.A. was allowed me to see great examples of 12-step recovery out here, long, long term. And because early in program in Connecticut, you know, I joke now that I said I wasn't an old-timer, but I played one on me at meetings, you know. I thought being an old-timer meant walking around in some Gandhi-like state, like a monk and spouting program slogans all the time. And what I learned from the people I really respect out here with, you know, 30, 40 years of abstinence is that they're human beings, you know, and they make mistakes, but they are better able to see those mistakes more quickly and adjust and they don't beat themselves up. They just try to learn from the experience and do better next time, you know, and they also know that the disease does not respect OA seniority, you know, that the price of abstinence is eternal vigilance. And I try to model myself after them to continue to work on myself. You know, I joke that my poor first wife, she got John 1.0, you know, and then I was in a long-term relationship uh, between my two marriages, and that woman got John 2.0, and my wife currently has John 3.0. But I continue to work both the steps with the program because John 4.0, you know, it's in beta. And, you know, that spiritual awakening, I think, has given me the most important component for dealing with my fellow man, and that's compassion. You know, I see today, we're all just kids running around in adult suits. You know, none of us ever got that manual on how to live life. You know, and we're all carrying around some garbage, wounds from our past. And, you know, today I don't see most people as bad people. I don't think they mostly deliberately do hurtful things. You know, I've learned to accept them. You know, I've learned to accept myself, and especially to accept my past. You know, I had to go through all the things I did to get to where I am today. And so I don't hold any grudges or resentments because they're poison. You know, they're, they're stones that go around my neck that pull me under the waves, and I don't want that. And you guys taught me that I have to forgive all those who harm me. You know, somebody told me once, forgiveness means giving up hope of a different past. And today I do. And I got this transformation through one thing. Well, actually, 12 things, you know, the steps. You guys taught me how to do this by relying on the help of my partner in recovery, God, you know. And so for me today, this spiritual awakening is about recovery and healing and having a view for the world that's about 180 years different from what I had when I first came to my first meeting. And, you know, to wrap up, as Jason said at the beginning this morning, it had to start with step one. 
I had to stop believing the lie that my disease told me every day that I could do it myself. I could, the answer is right around the corner. No, it isn't. I can't. No true addict can. Luckily, we have a book that helps us find that power greater than ourselves that will help us with our problem. And, you know, besides uh, Bill and Bob and Jim and Roseanne, I want to thank Leah and Melanie and Katie and all those who bring vision to life and to bring this book out. And it is, I, I will repeat what Arlen says, yeah, I think it's the renaissance of OA. And so happy birthday vision for you, and I'll turn it back to Leah. Thank you so much, John Kay. And thank you to our 12 speakers today for your beautiful shares. Thank you for giving so much of yourselves this morning. That's Jason K., Tina S., Lori W., Leon B., Sandy W., Adam D., Marie J., Leslie W., Penny L. C., Dawn B., Julie E. B., and John K. We'll get their numbers at the conclusion of this recording. And, of course, thank you to all the visionaries who have made a vision for you possible over the course of these seven years. To all of you near and far around the globe, thank you for all that you've given, all your service. Thank you for sharing your experience and carrying the message of recovery with depth and weight to the compulsive overeaters who still suffer. Indeed, a power greater than ourselves has has lifted us out of the quicksand and set us safe on shore, and for that I am grateful. And we're going to close from page 164. You'll notice it's in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.